Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It's been a while since I've done a podcast, and the reason why is I've been doing a lot of research in preparation for this particular podcast. Um, I've been diving into some original sources and and dealing with the hypothesis that I have. And so what I want to dive in on this podcast is the issue of corporate election and interacting with the non-Calvinist traditional Southern Baptist view of corporate election. I've had some conversations with Leighton Flowers about how he came to understand this view. Um, I'm going to interact with the teaching that he did on Ephesians chapter 1. And so there's a lot of confusion among Calvinists when it comes to understanding the traditional Southern Baptist viewpoint. There's often like two ships passing in the night because we as Calvinists have traditionally been interacting with the Arminian view of conditional election as articulated in the foreseen faith type of view of election. And that's really what we're used to hearing. And so when we come across this whole idea of corporate election, we as Calvinists sometimes scratch our heads and and wonder what what they're saying and where they're coming from. And so uh, historically, the question then becomes, how did this view of corporate election first get espoused historically? Did the church fathers believe this, or is this more of a modern interpretation? And so here's my hypothesis that I went to try to see if I could prove. Now, I can't prove this hypothesis. It's a hypothesis. I've got observations. I've got some source material. And so I'm going to give an opinion, and I don't know if it can be substantiated um, absolutely, but here's my hypothesis. Here's my um, supposition. My hypothesis, my supposition, is really that Karl Barth was the first major theologian to articulate corporate election, and his view has influenced Southern Baptists and others to embrace this, and therefore it's only about maybe 50 or 60 years old in church history. Did the view of corporate election occur before, let's say, the 1930s, the 1940s? Well, let's, lock, let, let, let's ask the question about church history, early church fathers, the patristic church fathers. Now, I do not think you can make an absolute statement saying that the early church fathers were Calvinistic, or they were Arminian, or they were corporate. One thing I do contend is that you really do not see the corporate view of election show up among a lot of the church fathers. What I'm going to give you are just some quotes about the doctrine of election from some of the church fathers. And again, everybody can cherry pick quotes out of context, and you don't have the full teaching of these um, sermons and these letters and these these polemical uh, statements that these early church fathers were making. But let me just give those to you to to set a context as far as the early church. Um, Irenaeus, around 180 A.D., said this, Hence, having completed the number which he before determined with himself, all those who are written or ordained unto life shall rise again, having their own bodies, souls, and spirits in which they pleased God. 
This is the idea that God has a predetermined number of the elect that were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Later on in 198 AD, Irenaeus also said this, God hath completed the number which he before determined with himself, all those who are written or ordained unto eternal life, being predestined indeed according to the love of the Father that we would belong to him forever. Clement of Alexandria, A.D. 190. He says, You are those who are chosen from among men, and those who are predestined from among men, and in his own time called faithful and elect, those who before the foundation of the world are known intimately by God unto faith, that is, are appointed by him to faith, grow beyond babyhood. Seems like there's a lot of teaching here of individual election, unconditional election. Cyprian of Carthage in AD 250, he's talking about Romans chapter 9, dealing with Isaac and Jacob. He says, How now, since their election does not arise from works, but from the purpose of God, from the will of him that calleth. Athanasius in 350 AD said this, Not therefore anything will be because God knows it to be future, but because it is future, it is known by God before it comes to pass. Which entirely accords with what we assert, that God did not decree anything because he foresaw it, but he foresaw it because he decreed it. How therefore should he choose us before we were, unless, as he said, we were before delineated in him? How verily before men were created should he predestinate us? So those are the early church fathers and some of their statements about election. And you can make the argument that it was individual, it was unconditional. Now there may be some who argue for conditional election. And so this idea really did not come into play as far as articulated until Augustine in his engagements with Pelagius. And so you have Augustinian theology. But let's just fast forward past that and let's just get to to Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius wrote this in the works of James Arminius. Quote, God decreed to save and damn certain particular persons. This decree has its foundation in the foreknowledge of God by which he knew from all eternity those individuals who would through his prevenient grace, believe, and through his subsequent grace, would persevere, by which knowledge he likewise knew those who would not believe and persevere. Now that's the doctrine of conditional election, articulated by Arminius. That's the the very succinct, traditional viewpoint of Arminianism. God chose certain individuals based upon foreknowledge of their faith. So even from Arminius, it's individual election of certain individuals to salvation based upon God's foreknowledge of what they would or would not do when presented the gospel. Classic Arminianism. And you also have the five articles of the Remonstrance. Um, They were drawn up in 1610. The followers of Arminius were protesting against the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination in the Belgic Confession. And so the Remonstrants came up with the five points of Arminianism first 
And those were actually deemed heresy by the Reformed Church at the Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619 when they came out with the five uh, articles of, of the Synod of Dort, or what we call the five points of Calvinism. But in Article 1 of the Remonstrance, they do teach individual election. That God, by an eternal and unchangeable purpose in Jesus Christ His Son, before the foundation of the world, hath determined out of the fallen sinful race of men to save in Christ for Christ's sake and through Christ those who through grace of the Holy Ghost shall believe on this His Son Jesus and shall persevere in faith and obedience of faith through this grace even to the end. There it is. The Arminian view conditional election. God chooses based upon what He sees they will do given provenient grace. So Arminianism is individual election. It is certain individuals chosen, but based upon God's foreknowledge being the contingency of how they get elected by what God sees them doing. And this was articulated by John Wesley as well. John Wesley was a famous Arminian who also believed that God chose certain individuals before the foundation of the world based upon God's foreknowledge. So throughout church history, you've had individual election. You've really had two primary camps. You've got the Augustinian Calvinistic reform camp that says that God chose certain individuals unconditionally based solely on His sovereign purpose and will before the foundation of the world. And the other camp you had is the, the Arminian or Wesleyan tradition that says also God elects certain individuals, but it's conditional based on the sinner meeting the conditions of repentance and faith given provenient grace to help them make that decision. And if God foresees that in eternity past, He thus ratifies their decision and elects them to salvation. So up until about the 1800s in church history, this whole idea of corporate election has not been thoroughly taught, articulated, expounded. You don't find it in a lot of the key confessions of faith. You don't find it in systematic theologies. You don't find it. And so I went and did, did a little bit more digging. What about some non-Calvinistic commentaries? What about some middle-of-the-road um, theological commentaries from the 1800s? A non-Calvinistic. Uh, Barnes Notes, Albert Barnes, um, his commentary in the mid-1800s. He looks at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 as individual election. Henry Alford famous scholar in his exegetical and critical commentary of the Greek Testament in 1856. He does not espouse corporate election, but sees it as individual election. So here's my deduction. And again, this is not scientific. I can't prove it absolutely. It's not airtight. Again, this is an observation. One could make the case that the dominant views in church history from the early church patristic fathers up until, let's say, the 1940s, was either conditional foreseen faith, Arminianism, or unconditional election, Calvinism. The corporate view 
which is what traditional Southern Baptists are arguing for, the non-Calvinistic Southern Baptists, they are saying that their view is the predominant view that they've been holding to. But I would say that their view, the corporate view, was not widely written about or promoted until the 1930s when it was introduced in Europe by a French theologian named Pierre Marie, or Marie, if you don't speak French. Pierre Marie. Pierre Marie was a theologian that wrote some documents about predestination. In 1957 is when he published Predestination in Other Papers through John Knox Press. And he was basically arguing that the overriding attribute of God is love. Love is the premier attribute of God. Instead of holding to the absolute decree of God to do and elect and predestine all things for His glory, Mari started with love. And so he pitted God's sovereignty against God's love and says, if we had to choose between an attribute of God that's the highest, we're going to choose love. And he writes this, quote, There is nothing higher than His goodness, nor anterior to it. God loves always from all eternity, and His purpose, before which and outside which there is no other, is to ally His life with the life of men in mutual love. Now, we don't deny that God is love. That is one of His attributes. But what he's arguing is that God's highest purpose, the most motivating aspect of God, is that there exists a mutual love between Him and His creation. Now we as Calvinists would say, we do not want to pit one attribute of God against another attribute. God is immutable. God is impassable. God is ontologically everything all at one time and who He is and His character. And so we can't say that, that love is higher than sovereignty or justice is higher than mercy. God is who He is ontologically from first to last. And we would say that God is holy and that all of His attributes are holy and you can't pit one against another. One can't be more lofty than another. All of his attributes comprise who God is. So, Pierre Mari is starting from a premise that there has to be a higher attribute in God than any other attribute, and that's, that's love. Now, Karl Barth, in 1936, heard a lecture by Pierre Mari, who rejected Calvinism. And... Through Pierre Mari's writing and friendship with Karl Barth, I think it profoundly influenced Barth's view of election and predestination that he espoused in his 8,000-page treatise, Church Dogmatics, Neo-Orthodox Theology. Barth reinterprets Calvinism. Actually, he rejects unconditional election that Calvinism taught. And so, Bart is the one, probably the most prolific theologian since Calvin, 
the most prolific theologian of the 20th century, with the most profound impact, I believe, upon Southern Baptist theology in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, thus the traditionalist movement birthed out of that. And so let me give you some thoughts and some quotes about Karl Barth's theology. He writes this, In its simplest and most comprehensive form, the dogma of predestination consists then in the assertion that the divine predestination is the election of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the electing God, and he is also the elected man. That is key to understanding Karl Barth's theology. Election and predestination is first and foremost God choosing to elect Jesus and reprobate Jesus. It's a, it's a weird theology that he has, but he starts with the election of Christ. And so he understands election under what we would call three concentric circles or three headings. The first being the election of Jesus Christ. The second being the election of the community. Whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or it's the church in the New Testament, it's, it's a corporate body. And then thirdly, the election of the individual. So in Bart's scheme, God chose Jesus to be, quote, the elect one, first and foremost, and really rejected the uh, classical view of Ephesians chapter 1, where God chose individuals. Arminians and Calvinists look at Ephesians chapter 1, and they believe that God chose certain individuals. They just disagree on the basis of how God did that. Was it unconditional through God's sovereign pleasure, i.e. Calvinism, or was it conditioned upon foreseen faith, i.e. Arminianism? Bart rejected both of those and argued for this corporate view. And what's significant in this shift is that Ephesians 1, 4-11 is no longer about individual election to salvation, either from an Arminian or a Calvinist viewpoint, but now it is a corporate election in Jesus Christ as the elect one. So it's still conditional election. But it's different than Arminian conditional election. A sinner chooses by faith to accept or reject Christ. And based upon meeting this condition, he or she is then placed in Christ and becomes part of the elect group that was predestined before creation. In other words, Bart rejects an individual election of sinners for salvation, sees Christ as the elect one, and the community as the church as the elect group, and one becomes part of the elect group, and thus has union with Christ, based upon the condition of exercising faith to put oneself in the elect. Here's the staggering observation. In his 500 pages on the doctrine of election in Church Dogmatics, he does not provide any extended or systematic exegesis of Ephesians chapter 1 to support his conclusions. He argues more from philosophy. He argues more from a Christocentric viewpoint of the Bible, which I don't disagree with the Christocentric viewpoint, but he does not exegete the text. Bart was very bothered by what theologians call the absolute decree. 
of God to save particular individuals before the foundation of the world by either unconditional election or foreseen faith. And as a reaction against this viewpoint, he radically altered the historic definition of election, I think shattering both the Calvinistic and the Arminian understanding of the doctrine. Both the Arminian and the Calvinist believe in the absolute decree of God to elect certain individuals. I mean, Arminius himself says it was an immutable and unchangeable decree that God had. The question then becomes, on what basis does God elect? In, in, in Arminianism, it's an absolute decree that God will save certain individuals based upon foreseeing their faith. Calvinism, it's an absolute decree that God will elect based upon the sole pleasure of His will. Bart says, I reject both of those. I'm going to argue for a new type of understanding of election. Christ is the elect one. Then there's the community that's elected to be in Christ, and one places themselves in the community by exercising faith, and when you, by your faith, place yourself in that community, then you become in Christ, and then you realize that election. But there was no real individuals being elected. It was more the corporate group and Christ. That's Karl Barth in the 1940s, 50s, articulating that viewpoint. Church Dogmatics was published at first in 1957. Around that same time, in 1952, J.A.T. Robinson's book called The Body came out. And he also argued for the corporate view of election. So this view is coming to fruition in the 1950s in Europe and in America. And what Robinson would say is that a Christian is only elect by virtue of Christ's election, not on account of a pretemporal choice by God out of the mass of fallen humanity. It is at the point of conversion, i.e., a believer's incorporation to the church, that election can be said to apply to any individual. He had the same conclusion that Karl Barth had. I wonder if they were both influenced by this Pierre Mari. Now, sadly, the thing about Bart and Robinson both. Now, Bart can be, it can be argued. We'd have to have a long discussion about, about Bart, but many accuse Bart of leading to universalism. That eventually everybody is elect and everybody would be saved. Emil Bruner, his contemporary, accused Bart of that. Bart denied that. But Robinson, he did not deny that. Robinson was a strong proponent of universalism. He flat out said, everybody's going to go to heaven. Many people believe that he actually influenced Rob Bell, whose famous book, Love Wins, basically outed him as a universalist, that he was influenced by the writings of J.A.T. Robinson. Okay, so you have the 1950s. You've got Robinson espousing a corporate view of election. You've got Bart espousing a corporate view of election. You have Pierre Mari who came out in the 1930s with this. Before, you've never really seen this. Now let's go into the world of Southern Baptists. Because somehow, and I can't prove this, but somehow these teachings begin to influence the seminaries. And I believe that at Southern Seminary, where Herschel Hobbes was a student... Bartian theology, neo-orthodox theology, was influential. 
Now, can I prove that? Can I go look at the archives of Herschel Hobbes and, and see that he borrowed from Bart? I don't know if I can specifically or accurately do that, but what I can do is give you the writings of Herschel Hobbes, famous Southern Baptist, who we all revere, the chairman of the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message Committee. And I would say that if you look at the writings of Herschel Hobbes, he had to have come to these conclusions by being influenced by, by Bart. In the late 70s, through Broadman Press, he published his Axioms of Religion. And Hobbes argued that God elected people to be, quote, in Christ, as opposed to the predestination of particular individuals. He writes this, quote, So God elected that all who are in Christ will be saved. All outside of Christ will be lost. Now one thing we can thank Herschel Hobbes for is that he did not go the route of universalism. Thankfully, he was orthodox. He was a, a devout, good theologian, Southern Baptist, somebody that we would respect. We, we disagree with him on his views of election, but at least he rejected, thankfully, uh, the universalism that, that this corporate view has tended to lead to. And so what he would do is he, he began to come up with um, the Ephesians interpretation that, that echoes these corporate election viewpoints, I think, of, of Karl Barth. He said this in his Axioms of Religion again, quote, The final choice lays with man. God in his sovereignty set the conditions. Man in his free will determines the results. And I'm going to talk about what those conditions are here in just a moment because Herschel Hobbes talks about a fence. But let's just look at the time frame here. 1936, Pierre Marie. 1952, Robinson. 1957, Karl Barth. You've had about a decade in the 50s of this, of this teaching to, to well up and to take root. Then you have the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message. So, so this, this is all coming out. Let's just, let's just pinpoint the time frame. Let's say late 50s, early 60s. A six, seven-year period from 67 to six, to 57 to 63, a six or seven-year period of time, this corporate view of election bubbles to the surface, and especially in Southern Baptist life, when Herschel Hobbes writes the commentary for the Baptist Faith and Message, 1963. And in the, section six on God's purpose of grace, he espouses the corporate view of election. Let me read it to you. Quote, He elected that all who are, quote, in Christ shall be saved. In Christ is the boundary that God marked out beforehand, like building a fence around a field. God did this in His sovereignty. In this act, He asked the counselor permission of no one. All who are within the fence, quote, in Christ shall be saved. Man is free to choose whether or not he will be in Christ. God never violates human personality. He will not save a man against his will. He knocks at the door of the heart, but he will not force it open. However, to all who have their own free wills opens the door, he enters and saves graciously apart from man's own efforts or merits. There you have it. A denial of individual election before the foundation of the world. God set the boundary. God marked out the fence. In other words, God elected Christ. Notice what he said? If you are in Christ, 
That's the boundary. That is the, 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 what, what's the predestinated group or plan. And how do you get into the fence? How do you get into Christ? You use your free will to get in. So again, this is conditional election. You're choosing by your own free will to get in Christ. And so he would not come out and, and say, I'm a Bartian theologian and influenced by Bart. But do you see echoes of Bart? This whole idea that Christ is the elect one and God set up a plan to be in Christ and the way you get into the predestined plan or the predestined group is by using your free will to get in. And yes, God is sovereign. God set up the plan. God sovereignly elected the plan. But there's no individual election to salvation before the foundation of the world. We see this very clearly from Herschel Hobbes. David Dockery, who wrote The Crisis of Scripture in Southern Baptist Life, Reflections on the Past, Looking to the Future, said this about Herschel Hobbes. Quote, Hobbes held a high view of biblical inspiration while embracing the classical Arminian interpretation of the doctrine of God so as to affirm complete divine foreknowledge of ever free human choice, yet in such a way that choices are not predetermined. I would actually disagree with Dockery and say, I don't think Hobbes was a classical Arminian. I think he was a corporate election theologian, which is different. He also writes this in What Baptists Believed, published in 1964. Quote, God has limited himself, however, by choosing not to assert his sovereignty in a way that would violate human free will. To do so would be inconsistent with his nature, character, and purpose. So God limits himself to not affect your free will. That's where these traditional Southern Baptists are using this terminology that God limits his sovereignty. God limits his, his sovereign rule in the sense that he would never violate human free will. And so uh, you wonder, well, where is this terminology where God, God is sovereign, but he limits his sovereignty? Where did that come from? Because earlier theologians, you never really hear them saying God limits his sovereignty. It's, it's God is sovereign. Um, Herschel Hobbes is very fond of using that term. God limits himself. God limits his sovereignty so as to not violate your free will. He would also say this, especially in his New Men in Christ studies in Ephesians that came out in 1974. A little bit more time to, 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 to come up with this doctrine, especially in relation to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Hobbes asserts this, quote, An all-powerful sovereign God has in matters of the Spirit voluntarily limited himself to the response of the free will of man. This is not an evidence of God's weakness, but of his power. Man can obey or rebel against God's will, but a sovereign God holds him accountable for his choices. And then in his Fundamentals of the Faith, he writes this, quote, Election refers to a plan of salvation for all men and not simply to the capricious choice of some men and the rejection of others. That's very clear where he's coming from. So you can say that Herschel Hobbes, whether we can scientifically prove that his deductions came directly from Herschel Hobbes or from um, Karl Barth or that he read Karl Barth and was influenced by Karl Barth, somehow in Southern Baptist life, 
in the 1960s, this corporate view of election emerges with the teaching of Herschel Hobbes, who is the most prolific Southern Baptist, and thus it gets permeated through the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, how it came about, we may never know. But to me, my hypothesis is this. 1930s to about 1970s, a 40-year period, you've got this corporate view of election, especially under the influence of Karl Barth, bubbling to the surface in seminaries, in theology, and it's becoming more and more popular. Paul Basden has written a book called Has Our Theology Changed? Southern Baptist Thought Since 1845. And he does a great job of summing up Hobbes's key theology in regard to election. It's a long quote, but let me give it to you because I think he succinctly summarizes Hobbes, Herschel Hobbes's view. Quote, God's plan must not be perceived as a hidden decree that predetermines who will and will not be saved. Rather, the plan concerns the all-important condition established by God for receiving salvation, namely, grace through Christ. A person's free choice to accept or reject God's plan determines his or her own salvation. Because God has conditioned salvation upon individual choice, the individual response is the determining factor. If a person chooses to believe in Christ, then that person is saved. The only criteria for salvation is to be in Christ. God elected that all who are in Christ shall be saved. God in His sovereignty decreed in Christ, but each person in His free will decides whether or not he will be in Christ. That is succinctly the corporate view of election. And Hobbes, I think, popularized it. And I think he got it from Karl Barth. Now, let's think about time frame here. So, Karl Barth, Church Dogmatics, 1957. Baptist Faith and Message, 1963. Herschel Hobbes. Well, in 1970, Robert Schenck wrote a book, Elect in the Son. Elect in the Son, S-O-N, uh, Jesus Christ the Son. Now, Robert Schenck was a Southern Baptist. He was a theologian. And he rejected eternal security and thus moved over to the Church of Christ, a more Arminian um, denomination, because he believes you can lose your salvation. But Elect in the Son was probably the most influential book to espouse the corporate view of election on a popular level outside of Southern Baptist circles. This was, pu this was published by Bethany House Publishers. Herschel Hobbes, I think, was relegated within Southern Baptist circles to the Sunday School Board and the literature that was produced. Uh, Robert Shank's book um, echoed out. And he also talked about the three concentric circles of Christ being the first one to be elected, and then the, the group being second, and then finally people being part of that. And so Robert Shanks, elected the Son, is a seminal work articulating the corporate view of election. Clark Pennock, another Southern Baptist who has now pretty much become, I think, an apostate, uh, he is basically believes you can lose your salvation. He believes in open theism, and he's also a universalist. So I think he's, he's gone off the, off the rails um, big time. Uh, but he has written this, and I think he's popularized the corporate view of election as well. Clark Pinnock says this, quote, Preferring abstract categories like immutability and sovereignty, it has driven love 
away from the center of the Christian message. Let us not start with the metaphysical being of God and then insert love somewhere down the line as an add-on. This is the heart of the matter. The triune God loves in freedom and longs for relationships with his significant creatures. You hear the echoes of Pierre Maria there. This whole idea that if we get rid of the absolute decree of God, if we, if we somehow, um, and the words he used there, abstract categories like immutability and sovereignty. Are those abstract categories? Immutability? Sovereignty? I mean, are you going to say that God being immutable, that God does not change, that God is sovereign, are abstract categories that, that we shouldn't start with? And we're going to elevate love? Again, it's pitting one attribute of God over another, which I think becomes very, very dangerous, because whatever attribute you tend to like about God, you will elevate that and build your theology around that, as opposed to seeing God as an ontological um, whole, in the sense that he, his being is, is one, it's, it's indivisible, and all of his attributes are equally expressed or equally revealed as the one true God. Now, so, historically, 1936, Pierre Maury. 1957, Karl Barth. 1963, Herschel Hobbes. 1970, Robert Schenck. The next seminal work, really in modern day, that espouses the corporate view of election is by a man named William Klein. And he wrote a book called The New Chosen People, A Corporate View of Election in 1992. So I would say his book, William Klein's book, and Robert Shank's book, both of those books, and really from 1970 to the 90s, 20 years or so, um, were the two seminal works that espoused the corporate view. And let me give you a quote from his book. Election is not God's choice of a restricted number of individuals whom God is willing to save. It is a description of the corporate body which God has in fact, is in fact saving through Jesus Christ. Election is not a limit on the mercy of God, but its very expression. Individuals become part of the elect body simply by responding to the call of God. Again, a denial of individual election before the foundation of the world an election of a corporate body, the church, and the way you get into the elect body and the way you have union with Christ is by responding with your free will to the call of God, meeting the conditions, and thus placing yourself into the reality of being part of the election. So, in other words, God did not elect any individuals before the foundation of the world. You only become elect in time when you meet the conditions of repentance and faith, and thus place yourself in Christ. And then once you do that, then you become part of the elect. Which I think, we'll see this in a minute, exegetically just does not work in Ephesians chapter 1. Recently, Brian Abiscano, who is a professor, I think at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, um, he is a chief proponent, one of the strongest proponents now, of corporate election. In the Ashland Theological Journal of 2009, he wrote a major treatise on corporate election. And he basically articulated what Schenck and what Herschel Hobbes and what um, Klein and maybe even what Karl Barth had espoused. And then the Society of Evangelical Arminians, if you go to their website, they have a concise summary of the corporate view 
of election and predestination. And I want to read to you this concise summary because I think it, it concisely articulates what they believe. They say, election to salvation in Christ is offered to all, but becomes actual for particular persons contingent on their repentance and faith as they accept God's gift of salvation. At the point of faith, the believer is incorporated into Christ's elect body, the church, and by the Holy Spirit, thereby becoming one of the elect. Now notice the faulty theology in this. Number one, it's conditional. They even use the word contingent. Your election is contingent upon repentance and faith. So it is conditional election, but it differs from the Arminian view. It views election as a noun. Notice what it says. Election is offered. Election is something that's offered to you. Now, if election is something that's offered to you, it's a noun. It's something that can be given to you. But in Ephesians chapter 1, election is not viewed as a noun, it's viewed as a verb. Something that God chooses to do. God does not offer election. God elects. God chooses. God predestines. And He predestines individuals. And he gives this really bad analogy. And later on, Leighton Flowers is going to use the analogy and, and tweak it a little bit. But let me give you their analogy. Here's what they say. Concerning election and predestination, we might use the analogy of a great ship on its way to heaven. The ship, i.e. the church, is chosen by God to be his very own vessel. Christ is the captain and pilot of the ship. All who desire to be part of this elect ship and its captain can do so through a living faith in Christ, by which they come on board the ship. As long as they're on the ship, in company with the ship's captain, they are among the elect. If they choose to abandon the ship and captain, they cease to be part of the elect. Election is always only in union with the captain and his ship. Predestination tells us about the ship's destination and what God has prepared for those remaining on it. God invites everyone to come aboard the elect ship through faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of problems with that analogy. It starts with the fundamental assumption that election is a ship. It's a plan. It's a corporate people that you can choose to be part of or not be part of based upon meeting the conditions of faith. So if you just want or desire to get on the ship, get on the ship. It's got a predestined course where it's going. You just got to get on the ship. The problem is, we as Calvinists believe in total inability. We believe in total depravity. Nobody wants to get on the ship. Nobody can get on the ship. Nobody desires the, the ship. You don't have the ability, nor do you want to get on the ship. Instead of seeing sinners as dead and rebellious and, and, and hostile against God, who are fallen... This just assumes that if you want to get on the ship, you can get on the ship. And so, when you meet the conditions of getting on the ship, you become one of the elect. But, on the same token, you can choose to jump ship. And when you jump ship, you lose your salvation, and thus you, you lose your election. And I don't even think an Arminian would agree with, totally with that concept. Now, they would believe you can lose your salvation, but again, notice the corporate aspect. There's no individual election. You choose to become one of the elect once you get on the ship. Now, let's look at some scholarship. Two of the 
best critical commentaries today on the book of Ephesians, I think, are Harold Honer's exegetical commentary from Baker and Peter O'Brien's commentary through the Pillar New Testament commentary system, or series. And both of these reject corporate election based upon lexical, theological, and um, exegetical concerns. So let me give you Harold Honer's quote. Quote, In him does not mean that God chose us through faith in Christ, as suggested by Chrysostom, that's an early church father, because this would destroy God's freedom of choice. If this were the case, believers by their faith would have a legal claim whereby God must choose them. Nor is it as Bart proposes that Christ is the elect, and we are in him because the object of the verb choose is us, and not Christ. Nor is it because God, by means of his foresight or omniscience, knew who would have faith in him, which then became the basis of election. God's selection was done on the basis of his good pleasure of his will. Notice how Honer basically negates all of the other views, besides the Calvinistic unconditional election view. He says, if it is based upon faith, where you are joining Christ by using your faith, then that would reject God's sovereignty in choosing. He rejects Bart's view of the corporate view, that Christ is the elect one and you come in through Christ, and he also rejects the Arminian foreknowledge view. Peter O'Brien says this, quote, It is inappropriate to suggest that election in Christ is primarily corporate rather than personal and individual. Every spiritual blessing must be understood as coming to believers personally and individually without thereby denying the corporate element. The plurals, we, us, are common, not corporate. Now let me give you two Southern Baptist theologians from Southern Seminary that have weighed in on this issue. The first is Bruce Ware, who contributed to uh, perspectives on election, five views by Robin and Holman, academic, that came out in 2006. He says this, quote, As often has been observed to counter the Arminian position that this text is about God's choosing Christ as the one who saves us, the direct object of He chose is not Christ, but it is us. Paul does not merely say that God chose to provide salvation for those who would come. Rather, he says that God chose particular persons to be saved. That's an important point. And it may be helpful at this point to just read Ephesians 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Notice that God chose us. It doesn't say, as Bruce Ware says, that God merely chose to provide for us, contingent upon us coming, it's particular people. Tom Schreiner also talks a lot about corporate election in regards to um, Abiscano, John Ab or, um, yeah, Abiscano's um, viewpoint, and they've gone back and forth and written some, some articles interacting with each other, and, and he gave an illustration. Now, now the, the corporate view of illustration about the ship, everybody getting on the ship and choosing to get on the ship and the destination, well, Tom Schreiner has his own illustration of a baseball 
18. And what he says this is this. Suppose you say, I'm going to choose to buy a professional baseball team. This makes sense if you then buy the Minnesota Twins or the Los Angeles Dodgers. But if you do this, you choose the members of that specific team over other individual players on the other teams. It makes no sense to say, I'm going to buy a professional baseball team that has no members, no players, and then permit whoever desires to come to play on the team. In the latter case, you've not chosen a team. You've chosen that there be a team, the makeup of which is totally out of your control. So to choose a team requires that you choose one team among others along with the individuals who make it up. To choose that there be a team entails no choosing of one group over another, but only that a group may form into a team if they want to. The point of the analogy is that, there, that, is that if there really is such a thing as choosing of a specific group, then individual election is entailed in corporate election. You see that analogy? The individuals have to come before the group. And, and, and all analogies break up. I understand that. But what I wanted to show you is, historically, I don't think the corporate view of election has been around since about the 1940s, 1950s in church history. Now, I do not want to make the argument that because it's not been around in church history, it's not valid. That, that's a straw man saying, well, because it's new or novel, it must not be valid. Basically, you're saying that if something's historical or has been around for thousands of years, it must be more exegetically accurate than something that's fairly new. We could make that same argument with dispensationalism. We could say, you know, until John Nelson Darby in the late 1800s espoused dispensationalism, uh, it was not the predominant view of end times eschatology. And so, therefore, since it's new, it must be wrong. Now, I'm not a dispensationalist, but, uh, you, you know, you have those arguments where if it's newer and it's novel, it must be wrong. I'm not going to make that argument. I'm just giving you an observation to say that if traditional Southern Baptists want to say that this has been the predominant view of Southern Baptists and it's been around for a long time in church history, my observations, my conclusions have led me through my own research to say, really, no. It wasn't until Pierre Marie, Karl Barth, Herschel Hobbes, Robert Schenck, William Klein, Brian Abishkano, these guys, it's really only from, let's say, the last 50, 60 years, especially in Southern Baptist life. So the question then, is it exegetically accurate? Is the corporate view of election, does it hold water exegetically? And I believe it does not. I have more respect for the Arminian foreseen faith view than I do for the corporate election view because I think the Arminian view at least starts from the premise that it's an immutable decree by God and that it is individual election before the foundation of the world. Now, where we differ is on the grounds. Is it God's sovereign pleasure or is it foreseen faith with provenient grace? But at least the Arminian starts from the same premise that the Calvinist does that it's individual election before the foundation of the world. Now, I want to interact with Leighton Flowers because... Leighton Flowers on his podcast, Soteriology 101, a few weeks ago, posted um, the traditionalist big three, and he deals with Ephesians chapter 1. And so I want to play and interact with his viewpoint of Ephesians chapter 1 because what he's arguing is very clearly and distinctly the corporate view that we've looked at. Where does Leighton Flowers get this? Well, I'm sure he's gotten this from his own 
um, exegetical conclusions, but it has to be influenced by Herschel Hobbes. has to be influenced by Brian Abiscano. And he would say that. He's had Brian Abiscano on his podcast. I'm not sure if he's read Robert Shank or William Klein. But I do know that my conversations with Leighton Flowers, he's linked to the Society of Evangelical Arminians and the concise view of corporate election. And so I know he knows these things. And so let's listen to Leighton Flowers give his teaching on how the traditional Southern Baptists understand Ephesians chapter 1. And let me just say this before we do this. I have tried very hard to understand the other side. I do not want to cast straw men and try to blow them up. I do not want to try to um, argue against an Arminian foreknowledge view and accuse traditional Southern Baptists of having that. They don't. They have this third view, corporate election, and we as Calvinists don't quite understand it. And so the purpose of this podcast is to help us Calvinists understand where the traditional Southern Baptists are coming from so we don't talk past each other like ships passing in the night, but we're able to actually interact with their exegetical conclusions. So let's listen to Leighton Flowers. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, when a Calvinist reads this, what he's reading in his reading, in his mind, uh, let me try to have you ever seen those pictures where you got the duck and the rabbit? You got a duck and then a rabbit, you could see both, you get the bills turn into rabbit ears, and you could see both of them. They're called bleaks. And these pictures, if you've ever seen these pictures, some of them are an old woman and a young woman. And you can see one of them, but you can't see the other one. You're so frustrated because all your friends are going, no, see, that's the nose. And you're going, I don't see it. That sometimes happens theologically, where we read a text so often we only see the duck. And every time we read it, we're going, it's a duck. It's obviously a duck. What are you talking about, rabbit? This is a duck. And once, once I was a Calvinist, I could only see a duck. And then eventually I come to see the rabbit and the duck. And then eventually I switched from believing it was a rabbit to, to a duck. Does that make sense? You kind of you begin to see it both sides. My goal when talking to Calvinists is not to convince you that it's different than what you think it is. My ob- the object of me as a professor when I'm talking to my students is I want you to see both the rabbit and the duck clearly. Because it's only when you can see both pictures that you can truly begin to weigh the options and decide which one is most likely the intention of Paul in this passage. Which one is most likely Paul trying to get across to his audience, the faithful in Christ Jesus? What is he trying to say? And so my goal here is to try to help you see both the rabbit and the duck. Now, the, the picture in the Calvinist mind is when he reads this, he says he chose, what he's saying is he chose certain individuals in the Calvinist mind, he's chosen certain individuals to be placed in Christ before the foundation of the world so that they would become holy and blameless. That's the way they interpret that. So he has chosen certain individuals that are going to be in Christ Jesus so that they will be made holy and blameless. That's the way they interpret it. So they see this as God choosing certain individuals who will certainly be irresistibly or effectually put in Christ and then therefore be made holy and blameless. That's not the way traditional sees that. We see the rabbit instead of the duck here. We see a different picture. And so remember who his audience is, the faithful in Christ Jesus, So let's take out us and him, and let's remember who the us is and read it with a different lens on. He has chosen the faithful in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you see the difference? Do you see all of a sudden the picture just shifted? Oh, so what you're saying, Leighton, is that God has chosen that those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, he has chosen what's going to happen to them. He has predestined 
what will become of those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That whoever is faithful in Christ Jesus, that before the foundation of the world, he has planned for them to become sanctified, which is what becoming blameless and holy is. So how do I know that I will be made blameless and holy? Because he is predestined for whoever's in Christ to be faithful and holy. So he has predestined the ends of those who are in Christ. Notice what it goes on to say. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Again, who's the us? Plug it in there and you can see for yourself. In love, he predestined the faithful in Christ Jesus to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, when the Calvinist sees this, they hear the word adoption and they think salvation. They think God has predestined certain individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved. That's the way they read this. But the word adoption is not equivalent to the concept of being saved past tense. In fact, we know from Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, that we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So notice he's doing here. He's waiting eagerly for something that hasn't yet come. He's waiting eagerly for his adoption. But how do I know I'm going to be adopted? You see, you can go down to the adoption center and you can fill out all the paperwork, and it takes months for that to go through. That child's not adopted until he takes residence with you. We're not adopted into the family until we go into the mansion in the room he's prepared for us, and he takes us up with him. We're eagerly awaiting for that to happen. How do I know what's going to happen to me? God is predestined for whosoever is in Christ Jesus. He is predetermined that the faithful in Christ will be adopted. We will be taken up with him so we can rest in the assurance of knowing God has predetermined what will come of whosoever is in Christ Jesus, the faithful in him. So look what he goes on to say. This is to the praise of his glorious grace, which, he's, he's, which he has freely given us in the one, again, it's in him, in the one he loves. In him, notice it says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So it's in him that we have redemption. Remember, we're talking about the spiritual blessings for the faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, it's in him we have redemption. It's in him that we have these spiritual blessings. In verse 8, it goes on to say, He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will. Now again, you may see the duck as a Calvinist when you first read that because you interpret it individualistically. You think of the individual. Certain individuals... We're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity of the word. So certain individuals who are chosen and elected to be in him, they were, they were predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything. But again, who's the audience? In him we, plug in who the, in him we are. The faithful in Christ Jesus were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything into the conformity of the purpose of his will. In other words, 
God has predestined what will come of all who are in Christ Jesus. That's his plan. His plan is to make you holy and blameless. His plan is to adopt you. His plan is to provide redemption for you in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now notice the steps here that Paul took through this first chapter. The faithful in Christ, that's the audience, they're predestined for these spiritual blessings. Verse 4, to be made holy and blameless, which is a part of sanctification. To be adopted as sons and daughters, which is a part of glorification. For redemption and forgiveness, which is a part of justification. Verse 7. In verse 8, we've been predestined for wisdom and understanding, which is a part of our sanctification as well. Verse 9, um, it's been predestined for us to have revelation of his mystery. The Holy Spirit is to be our guide to bring us truth and insight into the mysteries of Christ. That's, again, part of sanctification. So here's the big question I have for us to think about. And this is really, I think, the point of contention within the debate. How does one come to be in him? Because I want to be in him. Why? Because I want those spiritual blessings. That's what I want to be predestined to. I want to be made holy and blameless. I want to be adopted as a son. I want redemption and forgiveness. I want new wisdom and understanding. I want the revelation of his mystery. So the question is, how can I get in him? Well, for the Calvinist, nothing. You're either in him or you're not. You're either predestined to be in him or you're not. Now, a Calvinist wouldn't say that. A Calvinist would say, believe and you will be saved. But underneath that meaning, you can't believe unless you've been elected to believe unless God irresistibly causes you to want to believe. And so the truth of the matter is, again, the logical implication of the Calvinistic system is that you have nothing to do with whether you're in him or you're not in him. And you are ultimately placed in him before the foundation of the world, if Calvinism is true. And so that's the big question, I think, for this debate, is how does one come to be in him? Is there human responsibility in how we come to be in him? how we can be in Christ. Well, look back at verse 12 again. Notice what it says. In order that we, he's speaking of the Jewish, the apostles, we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, notice the human responsibility there. He was putting his hope in Christ. It doesn't say we, we the first who God irresistibly called to make us put our hope in Christ or irresistibly caused to put our hope in Christ. He puts that responsibility back on the man. It's we who first put our hope in him might be for the praise of his glory. Now notice it says here in verse 13, and you were included in Christ when, now let me pause right there, don't look ahead, don't cheat. When were you included in Christ? The Calvinist would have you, the logical implication of Calvinism would have you believe that you were included in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does Paul say? You were included in him when? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him. So when were you marked in him? Before the foundation of the world? No. You were marked in him when you, not somebody else, you believed. So you're not even marked in him. You don't have the spiritual blessings of being in him until you hear the message of truth and until you, in your own responsibility, you choose to believe in that truth. That's your responsibility. And this is a deposit. He gives us a deposit guaranteeing. There's another word for predestination, guarantee, right there. That's why the P of tulip, most of us as Baptists, we hold to the P of tulip. Because we believe in what sometimes is called perseverance. I like the word predestination better as the P. Because that's what predestination is all about. 
those who are in him, those who are the faithful in Christ Jesus, God has predestined for you to be sanctified, glorified, justified. He has predestined for that end. And that's the guarantee, the inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what I've done is I've played Leighton Flowers' presentation, not all of it, uh, just for the sake of time, but I wanted to play it in its totality so that you could see the flow of his argument. Uh, one of the things that I, I don't particularly like, but I know some people in podcasts that have their own podcasts do that, is they, they, they'll play a short clip and they'll respond to it and play a short clip and respond to it, and, and sometimes you never get the flow of thought of the person they're responding to. And I could have done that. I could have stopped and, and, and interacted with what he wanted to say, but I, I think I wanted you to hear this in its totality so that you could see his train of thought. And basically what he has argued for is a conditional view of corporate election. Notice that he is talking about this whole idea of when we are in Christ. He says it's not God's plan to save certain individuals before the foundation of the world, but it is the, the real contention, and this is what I agree with him, he says that the contention, the, the, the point of, of disagreement, the real crux of the matter is, how do we get the spiritual blessings in Him? How do we get in Him? And basically what he's saying is, is that in verse 12 and 13, when you heard the Word and believed, you were marked in Him. And so Layton's argument is that the corporate election is a destination to be in Christ, and the way that you get in Christ is when you believe, and then you're marked in Him. Which is interestingly a translation used from the NIV, and none of the other translations use that term marked in Him. The main verb there is sealed. Not marked in Him, but Sealed, And he talks about how it's your own responsibility to believe the truth. And then when you, out of your own free will, believe the truth, then you're marked in him. Then you become one of the elect. It's a corporate election. It's a plan. It's a destination. And then once you, by your own free will, choose to believe that, to believe in Christ, then you're placed in him. There's not an individual election taking place before the foundation of the world. And so I wanted you just to hear uh, Leighton Flowers' presentation because he gives a very cogent and lucid presentation of the corporate view of election. But let's just talk about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 15, because I want to give you uh, my exegetical conclusions. So let's just read this together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Now we could go on and talk about the redemption that we have in Christ, but let's just go down to verse uh, 13, because that's where Leighton and others tend to make the argument that, that uh, that's when we're placed in Christ. Actually, 
you've got, um, let's pick it up right here. To the praise of His glory in Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Now let me just give you some exegetical conclusions from this text that we as Calvinists hold to in regards to our understanding of the election being individual and the election being unconditional. Observation, conclusion, however you want to say it. Number one, Christ is not the direct object of the choosing. It is us. Karl Barth and others have made that argument that Christ is the one who is the elect one. But the actual grammar in the text says He chose us. It's us that God chose. Now, that's important because the whole basis of Karl Barth and the corporate view is that Christ is the direct object of God's choosing. But the, the actual language in verse 4 is us. Second conclusion. This election or choice is not God's decision simply to make salvation possible to an undefined number one day who would come to faith in Christ. This text does not teach election to a plan or election to make salvation possible, or this idea that one day if somebody uses their free will, then they will be in Christ. The flow of thought from the text, from verses 4 and 5, is that God made the choice. He chose us in Christ. Not chose a plan. Not chose a destination. He chose us. There is an individual election going on in this passage of Scripture. Not choosing for a possibility. Now, the choice, this is number three, conclusion, the choice is of a particular individual or particular individuals in Christ before the foundation of the world. This refers to the time aspect of when the election occurred. The election was not of a group or a set that would one day have people choose to become part of that set. A group only becomes a group when it's first made up of individuals. So the individual election comes first before you have a group. There's this nameless, faceless group that's elected, this corporate election. We're going to elect a group, the church. We're going to elect a people. But we have to understand, before there's actually a group, there's got to be people that make up the group. And so this is an individual election before the foundation of the world. Number four, the text does not say that Christ was chosen as the corporate head and then the church becomes a reality insofar as people believe in Jesus. That's not what the text says. Number five, this whole idea of in Christ or in Him is dative. It's a dative preposition, meaning that salvation would be through Christ and His redemptive work. It, it's the sphere in which the election takes place. It's individual election. It happened before the foundation of the world, and it is in Christ. So a person is not placed in Christ 
when that person believes, yes, there's union with Christ that comes as a result of justification, but in God's mind, the election takes place of certain individuals in Christ before the foundation of the world. Number six, the context demands unconditional election because there are no demands or prerequisites for election and predestination. In that passage of Scripture, do you see any prerequisites? Do you see any qualifiers? Do you see any conditions that need to be met in order for God to do the choosing? No, it's very active. God chose us. God predestined us. It's God's active choice to do the predestinating work, to do the electing work. There's no conditions that have to be met. And so when the Arminians or the, or the um, corporate view says that God offers election, remember what I said earlier, they see it as a noun. It's something that God offers to people. Whereas the text shows it as a verb. It's something that God does. And there's no conditions that have to be met in order for God to do that. So it's unconditional election. Now, there is a prerequisite. There is a condition in this one long sentence that we have to see. And that is, the only condition or prerequisite that we see in this passage of Scripture is in verse 13. You have to hear and believe in order to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, you were sealed. Now, these are human actions that take place in time. When you hear and you believe, those are human actions that you do. But in the argument from Paul, what comes first? The human response to be in Christ or God's election before the foundation of the world. And so... These human activities take place in time as a result of God's election and effectual calling, not the cause of election. You see, they reverse the order. They say that the reason you become elect is because you, of your own free choice, chose to be in Christ. So they go to the very end of the verse, the very end of, the chapter, of this passage, and they look at the human responsibility, and then they export it back to the beginning and say, that's how you get back to be in Christ, as opposed to Paul's argument from the very beginning is that he chose us. No preconditions for the choosing. No prerequisites for the electing. Those are God's sovereign choice of unconditional election of individuals. What are the prerequisites to be able to, be, uh, to, 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 to experience salvation? You have to hear and you have to believe. And we as Calvinists would say, yes, there is human responsibility. You have to repent, you have to believe. But you don't do that in order to become elect, you do that because you were elect. In other words, the election comes first, and then your response comes as a result of God's sovereign election, not the other way around. Okay? Number eight. The goal of election is to be holy and blameless. God chose us in Him to be holy and blameless before Him. Now, two things about this concept of holy and blameless. Number one, it assumes 
that unbelievers are not saved or are not holy or not blameless before election. So it takes into consideration the fallenness of humans before God chose them. So God takes into account when He does the choosing, when He does the election, the fallenness of man. Because they're not holy. They're not blameless. They are unholy. They are blameworthy. Secondly, under this category, and I would disagree with Leighton Flowers on this, being holy and blameless does not refer to our progressive sanctification. It refers to positional holiness. To be holy and blameless is talking about salvation. It's talking about a positional holiness that comes as a result of justification. So, yes, it is the goal of our election to be holy and blameless. That is our salvation. The goal for us to be positionally sanctified before God. Number nine, observation or conclusion. The outcome of predestination is to be adopted. Now, one of the things that I also disagree with is the idea that this is not a, that, that this is a future reality. One of the things that Leighton Flowers did is he, instead of dealing with the adoption in Ephesians chapter 1, he goes back to another book of the Bible and talks about how adoption is a future reality. One thing we need to understand about adoption is that it is a already, not yet reality. When you trust Christ for salvation, when you repent and believe... By faith you are justified, which means that the imputed righteousness of Christ is given to you as a gift. Thus you are positionally holy and blameless as a result of justification. Then you are adopted into God's family at the point of your justification. It is a reality for all believers. You are Adopted into God's family. You are a child. Now, do you experience the full expression of your adoption? Are you in the presence of your heavenly Father, in your heavenly home, in your glorified body? No, not yet. So there is a future reality with adoption that, yes, we're waiting the adoption of sons, but we're waiting for the full consummation of that. But that does not negate the fact that we are already adopted now. What what Christian would not want to say I'm a child of God right now? I have to wait until I get to heaven to be a child of God? I have to wait until I get to heaven to experience the blessings of adoption right now? No. We are adopted in light of our justification. Being holy and blameless is a positional justification before God that He chose us to be, and then He adopted us into His family. Now, here's the final observation. The exegetical conclusion that has been made that a person is included or marked in Christ, thus this whole idea of, of, of the fact that you, you know, when you believe and heard, when you heard and believed, you were marked in Christ, I think it separates the entire Trinitarian thrust of the sentence. Our election was in Christ. Our redemption was in Christ. Our sealing was in Christ. The choice of sinners before the foundation of the world was in Christ. Believers were also in Christ at His redemption on the cross. Believers are sealed in Him by the Holy Spirit upon belief. 
All of this is in Christ. Every aspect of it is in Christ. The only time aspect in this entire sentence, logically, according to the Paul's flow of thought, if we're going to follow Paul's flow of time, the first time aspect is the election that took place before the foundation of the world. And in God's mind, we were united with Christ in His electing love. In God's mind, when Christ died on the cross, we were in Christ. Experientially, we have union with Christ, time-wise, in time, when we repent and believe, and we're sealed with the Spirit. The text does not demand that we only become in Christ upon meeting the condition of hearing and believing in order to become one of the elect. If you just follow Paul's flow of thought, time-wise, logic-wise, Trinitarian-wise, you see his argument very clearly. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all have a role in giving us these spiritual blessings that come in Christ. And so we are elect in Christ, individually, unconditionally. When Christ died on the cross and redeemed us, Paul elsewhere says we were united with Christ in His death, and we were buried with Him in His death. And we're raised to new life. And so, in God's mind, when Christ died on the cross, we who were the elect were there in union with Christ at that time. But experientially, we don't experience the fullness of being with Christ until the Holy Spirit applies that election, He applies that redemption through the hearing and believing of the gospel and sealing of the gospel. It's all in Christ. When did the election take place? Before the foundation of the world. And so, what I think the corporate view of election does is it turns Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 on its head in the aspect of time, in the aspect of the conditions that have to be met, in the aspect of who's doing the choosing and how it all works out. So let me just give the two views again in summary. Corporate view of election. God chose Christ to be the elect one, and God chose the community of faith that would be His body. And so it's not an individual, unconditional election. It was more of a plan. It was more of a destination. It was more of a concept that there would be the church. And then, based upon you using your free will at a point in time... You choose voluntarily of your own free will to repent and believe, and then you're marked in Christ. That's when you're included in Christ, and thus become one of the elect. In other words, you put yourself into election through your free choice. Thus, it's a conditional election. You have to meet the conditions in order to be one of the elect, i.e., you have to repent and believe, and then you become one of the elect. You weren't elect until you actually placed your faith in Christ, and then you became part of the group that was elect, but you weren't individually elected before the foundation of the world. So corporate election is a conditional scheme or system whereby you have to use your free will to get in. 
In other words, election is something that's offered to you, and you opt to get into it. Again, it's a noun. Whereas we as Calvinists believe in individual unconditional election. We see election as a verb. God chooses. God predestines. It's individual. He predestined us. He predestined individuals to be holy and blameless, to be saved, to be positionally justified and adopted into his family. When did this take place? Before the foundation of the world. And then at a point in time when we heard the gospel and believed, we were sealed. It didn't mean we were marked in Christ or we were included in that election. We were The reason that we believed was because we were elect to believe. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we read the text Trinitarianly, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to the praise of His glorious grace, all done in Christ. And so there is a huge difference between how we as Calvinists understand the doctrine of election as presented in Ephesians chapter 1 and the corporate view. And so I, I hope this podcast has been honest with dealing with the real point of contention of explaining historically how the doctrine of corporate election came about in church history, interacting with one of, um, a, you know, uh, a popular teacher in Southern Baptist circles right now, Leighton Flowers, whom I do respect, and we have a cordial relationship, and hearing his view, and then showing how we as Calvinists differ based upon our exegesis of Ephesians chapter 1. And so, in conclusion, you need to make the choice. Do you believe in Unconditional individual election, i.e. Calvinism. Do you believe in individual conditional election, i.e. Arminianism? Or do you believe in conditional corporate election? Which is what the traditional non-Southern or non-Calvinist Southern Baptist view is at this point in time. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I appreciate uh, your listenership. God bless you and keep you. Cause His face to shine upon you. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.